Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Medicus. My name is Aaron Ding, and I am joined today by Isabel Tan. Today for Medicus, we have Dr. Joe Volk from the Rush Medical College, who actually wears a bunch of hats. Dr. Volk serves as the Director of Missions and Recruitment at Rush Medical Center, as well as the Director for Diversity and Inclusion and for the Outreach and Recruitment of Rush Medical Center. Thank you, Dr. Joe, for being here with us today on the Medicus Podcast to talk about medical admissions. Well, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We are too. So outside of our little introduction, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? So as Aaron mentioned, my name is Jill Volk. I'm serving the capacity of Director of Admissions and Director of Diversity and Inclusion for the Medical College. I'm what we call a lifer at Rush. I've spent most of my career doing a number of different things, um, from student development, working in the university, to a number of hats in the medical college, from student advising, special programs, and somehow have landed in admissions and diversity. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you got into medical admissions specifically and what were your favorite parts about your job? I think before I got into medical school admissions, I did out of undergrad, I did spend a couple years with undergrad uh, admissions and recruiting. And so I've always kind of had a passion for that. But my love has always been in higher ed, higher ed administration and specifically student development. So I kind of landed in admissions. I was asked to do a number of revamping for the medical college, and it just took off from there. And what does your daily routine look like as a medical admissions director? Good question, Isabel. You know, there's no two days that are the same, which I appreciate. You know, admissions is a for us, it's 16 months. For applicants, it's probably even longer than that. But it's never a dull moment, which I like. It's a high-paced environment, which I thrive on. And I truly, truly enjoy uh, working with students, both students and pre-meds, as they begin this path. It's, uh, as we mentioned before, it's, it's a long path for applicants to get to that point where they're really ready to submit their application to AMCAS. And then it's that hurry up and wait for the next, what, 12, 15 months, that roller coaster ride. So I, I truly, I thrive on knowing that if we can help ease the anxiety and stress in that process, then we've done our job on our end. So you've been at Rush Medical Center for a long time. You've been a lifer. Uh, what specifically about Rush has kept you there? And what do you think are the main drawing points of Rush for medical applicants? I think it's twofold for me. The first thing is our students. I absolutely love our students. I'm amazed. I'm excited for them. Every year, the applicant pool that comes through and the matriculants that we bring to campus are amazing. They're, you know, collaborative. They have a genuine interest in helping others, you know, with Rush being located on the um, near west side. We are an anchor institution and our students are heavily involved in the community and to see what they can do and what they do in addition to 
going to medical school, having a life outside of medical school. It's amazing. Again, if I can have an impact in that and help them through their journey, uh, incredibly rewarding. Kind of following up on that, this is a little bit of a personal story, but I think a lot of medical students, they have this idea of how did I get here? How am I surrounded by all these amazing students like you're saying? What would you say to students who might have just been admitted or are in the process of being admitted to medical school who might be dealing with these feelings of imposter syndrome? You know, Aaron, that, that's a good question. And you're absolutely right. There are a number of people at all different levels that are dealing with imposter syndrome and it's, it's there, right? So we need to acknowledge that it's there. We need to open the lines of communication. What we do on our campus is we bring students together with faculty, with staff, physicians, attendings, residents to really talk about these issues, talk about what I'm experiencing, what everybody else is experiencing. How do I navigate this? And I think it's important to hear from residents who just went through this process for four years that you're right. I, I did go through this. Here's how I was able to manage the, the ups and downs. And for our students to see success on the other end, you know, you absolutely belong here. And that's the first thing that we tell them. Don't think otherwise. You know, we came through this process and you absolutely belong here, need to be here, and we're going to help you in any way we can as you move through this process. But I think it's important to continue to have conversations and to understand what everybody is experiencing and how do, how do we help with that? And how do we get each of you to the next phase and know that you're going to be a successful physician? We're now plus or minus two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, and there's been a large increase in medical school applications that we've termed the Fauci effect colloquially. Do you feel that this has been consistent with your experience at Rush? And do you think that this increase in medical applications is here to stay? That's the question of the day. Um, is, is it here to stay? You know, we've seen an increase in applications, uh, AMCAS applications consistently since I've been in this role. Now, sometimes it might be an increase of 500, sometimes it might be an increase of 1,000, but we've definitely seen an increase uh, over the years. And, and I, don't think we, I, I don't think I can say that we've seen a significant increase in the last couple of years, definitely an increase. Um, I, I wouldn't term it significant. Uh, I, I think we need to watch it in the years to come because a lot of times when there's um, something like a national pandemic or a recession or something where the economy is affected by what's happening in society, a lot of individuals decide to go back to school, right? So how many of these individuals are going to go back and say, I've always wanted to be a physician and I've never really had the opportunity. I'm going to go back and take some prereqs. I'm going to work on my path to medicine and two, three years down the road, we might see them applying. So that, that might be something to watch as well is what do we see a couple years down the road? You know, after we are coming out of it, hopefully we're out of it, but as we move in the other direction in a positive direction, I would predict that we're going to continue to see increased applications on the topic of COVID-related 
trends that we're seeing. I know last year, many medical schools didn't require or even request MCAT scores from applicants due to COVID and the changing of scheduling and all those types of things. Uh, Do you think that that will continue or do you think it was more of a COVID specific fix? I know for us, we adjusted our application process to go ahead and, for instance, offer secondary applications without an MCAT score. So applicants didn't feel like they were significantly behind in moving forward in the application process because maybe their MCAT got shifted to July and then August and then September. So again, going back to that, we want to make this the best possible process for applicants. So we did that last year. We didn't need to do that this year because the MCAT was kind of on top of it. We didn't see the flux of a number of testing sites either being closed or, you know, cutting the numbers of individuals that can test on a given day, whatever, whatever the scenario might be. Um, So I, you know, we have to look at holistic admissions, right? And how each institution does holistic admissions. So for us, we're interested in knowing, can you handle the academic rigor of our medical school. And everybody's going to do the definition of our a little bit different. So we have a flipped classroom, a lot of preparation up front, and then a lot of can you apply the knowledge that you've learned? And that's not an environment for everybody. You know, there are some individuals out there that are still very lecture. I need to be lectured to. I need to have know what my assignments are. I need to know when my exams are specifically and what it's going to cover. And so I think that's part of that process in trying to find the right student for your institution. You know, you have to have metrics at some level, and I think that some level differs between schools. So at our level, we're interested in just knowing, do you have the foundation that we can say you can be successful in our curriculum? You know, we're, we're a school that once we determine that on the front end, metrics are blinded part of our process. So our reviewers don't see GPAs and MCATs. Our interviewers don't see GPA and MCATs. They'll, of course, see the courses that were taken in the grades. And if there's an upward or downward trend, but again, all in that spirit of, do you have that basic science academic foundation that you need to be successful? The other thing for us that's important is we're on a block system. So we don't have a semester for a student who maybe needs a little catch up and, oh, you know, I'll I'll get to that level and catch up with my classmates. In four or five weeks, you don't have time to do that. We need everybody at the same level, hit the ground running and be able just to make it through that block. So those are the other things that we're looking for is, you know, where is it again in regards to can you come into that block, have the foundation and be successful four weeks later? What advice would you give to students who might be applying non-traditionally and have been out of school for several years and might be having some anxieties about hitting that ground running right at the start of medical school without having a ton of experience in the past few years of studying and being on that academic grind? Great question, but I think it takes some self-reflection from the applicant. You know, what kind of a learner are you? How did you do in the science courses Um, you know, and I think as adult learners, we learn differently, right? So we learn, we're going to learn differently in medical school than what we learned in say freshman year of undergrad. So a lot of it is some self-reflection. I also have a look at, uh, if they're really uncertain and apprehensive, 
consider taking a course, get back into the swing of things. Again, look at that science foundation and see, was there a course that you kind of struggled with a course that you just, you may have done well in it, but you just don't feel like you learned the material. So less about the grade, more about the material and the content. And maybe they take that class again and it's twofold, get you back into that routine of what it takes to study what it takes to go to class and balance the rest of your life. And, and then it becomes more of a gradual, but it also builds confidence, right? So then you come back and you say, oh yeah, I still have it. I can do this. And, and I think that confidence is, is incredibly important when you, when you first come in. Great. And so Jill, I have a question for you too, about the other component of a medical school application, which is the activities and experiences section. And particularly in the past few years, I think students have struggled to find opportunities to get volunteer hours, as well as even clinical experiences with the pandemic. And do you feel that that has been reflected in the applications that you've looked at? And has that changed how your office has had to approach looking at these activities sections? Isabel, you're, you're right. And I think that adds to the anxiety that a lot of applicants have um, who are like you as a first year, you, you went through this not so long ago, um, right at the beginning of this pandemic. And how is that going to affect me? You know, I don't think we've seen a cut and dry answer, you know, so there are a number of applicants, for instance, this year. So those who are applying and interviewing for the fall cycle, there are a number of applicants who have done amazing things during the pandemic, just amazing things. And it seems like all the stars have aligned, you know, everything that they have pursued um, and sought out, they were able to participate in. That could be service, that could be vaccinations, that could be just a number of things. And then of course we see applicants who in a different realm have to move back home because of financial concerns, or they might have to contribute to the finances of their family, or someone in their family has gotten sick and they have to tell, take care of, you know, and that's a whole different scenario in terms of what is happening and what, what time do they have to put towards these other things. And then we always have those applicants that are, I couldn't find anything to do during the pandemic. You know, and those are the ones that you have to take, kind of take a step back and say, could you not find anything? Or were there other things that were preventing you from doing healthcare exposure or service or whatever the case may be? So I believe the, the better thing might be to say it's, it's definitely changed um, in terms of what we're seeing. So we saw a lot or are seeing a lot of telehealth. You know, so I was able to scribe via telehealth versus scribing in the emergency room. Um, text crisis counselors, hot, hot in the last year and a half, two years. It's almost one of those things that if you don't see it on an application, it makes you wonder why not? Um, because that's been really popular and something that students are able to do wherever they are and know that they're still help, helping others. So you know, it's not, again, it's different for everybody. And I'm going to take it back to that holistic admission. We got to look at that. You know, when we're looking at an application, I can't just say this applicant doesn't have the level of healthcare exposure or doesn't have the level of direct patient care that most of our applicants do. We can't say that without doing a deeper dive into the application to find out what is their situation? 
where, what are the hardships that they've overcome? You know, were they just unable because they live in a small town and there was nothing available that the town truly shut down? Or on the flip side, I moved back home and I'm in a large city and I had all of these opportunities. And then the question becomes, did you take advantage of the opportunities that were afforded? Moving one step further from the application, once students start to become accepted for interviews, I think that's another anxiety-provoking part of the admissions process. And another portion of the admissions process that has been significantly impacted with the COVID-19 pandemic. So how has that shift of virtual interviews, second look days, how has the virtualization of these traditionally in-person events evaluate incoming students? impacted all of us, right? So it's impacted the admissions team by far. Oh my gosh, how do we how do we completely pivot from completely on campus to entirely virtual? It's definitely impacted applicants. Um, but let's not forget the positive aspect of applicants. Think of the cost savings of doing virtual interviews. You know, and that's something that we just can't forget that it's, it's a huge cost savings. Flights, hotels, missed work for a couple of days to get to an interview. And some applicants you know, will interview at double digit schools. And you think about the cost of not only making application to that, but then the cost of actually doing the physical interview. So you know, we were fortunate. I have a great team. I have a great team of ambassadors. Ambassadors came in the first thing before we even figured out what our interview day was going to look like two years ago. Our ambassadors were all over a virtual tour. They had their cameras, they had their phones, and they were cruising around campus trying to put this virtual tour together because they really understood that was a big part of our interview day that was going to be missing. And how do we embrace and showcase who we are and what our personality is. We're very much a family institution and we have a lot of personality at Rush. And that really comes through during the interview day. So that was the piece that we really had to say, yeah, we can do an interview, right? Everybody muddles through Zoom. We can get the information we need and we can we could figure out that piece. But how do we really project who we are, what we're about, what our community is about? You know, you get those misconceptions of, Med school is cutthroat, it's competitive, and that's not us. You know, our atmosphere is very supportive, very collaborative, and how do we get that across? So we were fortunate in being able to do that. We also had been wanting to do a reception the night before, similar to residencies. You know, residency interviews do all these dinner parties and receptions the night before, but we didn't want to increase the cost and we didn't want to have applicants think that they had to attend that on Tuesday night. So the virtual realm gave us an opportunity to test it, you know, so we could virtually get our ambassadors together, have a social hour on Zoom, right, on Zoom. But nonetheless, it gives you an opportunity to meet a large number of our students at different levels. You know, we were able to get ones, twos, threes, and fours, whereas on campus, we might not have gotten that. So I think that was a positive thing with uh, interviews The other thing I think with interviews, um, some feedback that we've gotten is we put a lot of breaks in our day. You know, so between interviews, we'll give them a 15 minute break. Um, Between the morning interview sessions, we give them a half an hour for lunch. Just go get off of Zoom, 
for a little bit of time, regroup, take a deep breath, and then the afternoon come back. And our afternoon is pretty casual. It's all about learning about rush. You know, so we tell them, bring your beverage, loosen your tie, take your jacket off, you know, and just really sit back and embrace who you're meeting. Um, our groups are smaller. Our interview day groups are smaller because we want to be able to uh, still have that interactive conversation and not, if you've got a group of 35 or 40, we just didn't want people to feel apprehensive about asking a question or not having the time or opportunity. So we've reduced our interview days to 20. Everybody can get on the same Zoom screen and see everybody so you don't have to flip back and forth um, between screens. And we encourage people to take their, take their audio off. You know, if you've got a question, ask a question. You know, that's what it's all about. So a lot of feedback um, from applicants. We survey them. What did you like? What didn't you like? What went well? What didn't? Um, and we just really try for the actual interview piece of it. We really try to ensure them that I just want to get to know you a little bit better. I've read your application. Are you who you said you are on paper? I want to find that out. But I just want to have a conversation with you and find out a little bit more about your path. Um, your journey to get here, what your goals and aspirations are for the next four plus years, plus, you know, your entire career, and how can we help you achieve that? And I think by coming up, um, you know, we've always presented that up front, but it's, it's also easy for applicants to kind of look at you, nod your head and be like, oh, sure, Jill, sure. That's what you say, but is that what's going to happen? Um, you know, so we just need to ensure that that's happening for them. And, um, you know, just recognizing that we're all going through this, right? None of us want to be on Zoom for six and a half hours. Um, how do we make the best of it? So sorry, that was kind of a long, windy answer, but um, there's a lot to that question. Thank you. I think applicants will be really excited to hear about the rush process. And I think that's pretty generalizable across a lot of different medical schools. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. a lot of medical schools have done a really good job adjusting to the virtual format. Yep. Yep. And there's a lot of talk about, are we going back to in-person? Are we not going back to in-person? Um, we haven't decided. Um, I, I don't know what we'll do. Time will tell. We'll have to really evaluate the data. I think the second part of the question was second look day or first look day or first trip to campus. You know, last year we had the grandiose thought of, oh, we'll interview virtually, but come January, we can do campus tours. So if you're in Chicago, we can get ambassadors and we can do small group campus tours. Well, January of 20. 21 came and that wasn't possible. We shifted from a one day on campus, second look day to first look slash second virtual month of activities. So we took throughout the entire month of April, we took a bunch of topics. We surveyed our, our accepted um, pool, wanted to know what they needed more information about who they wanted to hear from. And we probably did a, a series of both educational um, as well as social. So I think each week there was a social hour with a group of students. We did um, wellness activities. So we did scavenger hunts and we did um, just different wellness activities through the month, different challenges that they had the week to do. And then at the end of the week, they can um, submit their results. Uh, so a lot with our current students, which, which is important. They just need to hear from our current students and, again, learn what the environment is. 
And then we took all of the educate, what I call educational. So more on curriculum, more on financial aid, more on diversity and inclusion. And we took those and hosted them throughout the month, recorded them. So if you were working, we understood that. Um, here's a video recording. Um, so I think that helped as well is to be able to, to, to span it out for a month. Um, we obviously got to um, tackle more opportunities and more topics than what we could do one day in person. Um, but that's kind of how we shifted for the last two years. We're still crossing our fingers and holding out that we can do something on campus this year. But right now, our non-educational events, so anything not related to our current um, academic curriculum, are still on hold. So fingers crossed, um, but we're not real sure what's going to happen with that. So you've spoken a lot about how Rush is trying to portray their culture to interviewing students. What advice do you have to students to be able to ensure that they're getting the same at all the medical schools that they're applying to? Since one of the big negatives of virtual interviews is that you're actually not there in person and not there to able to feel the community that all the medical schools Mm -hmm. have established. What advice would you have for applicants that are interviewing to be able to ensure that they're choosing the right medical school for themselves? You know, one, we got that question um, the other day in an interview, um, in one of our interview days um, to one of our current students is, how did you decide you went through this process completely virtual? So last year, Isabel, you interviewed virtually. If you did any second, first look opportunities, they were all virtual. And you you really had to make this decision for for most people, sight unseen. Um, And, you know, one of our students gave a really good advice, ask to talk to students, So, I mean, that's always good advice to ask to talk to students, Um, but really ask them why you chose, you know, why did you choose to come to Rush? Did you find the reasons you chose for Rush were true? You know, did you, I chose it for X and Y. Did X and Y really happen for you? Um, See how many students that you can talk to, right? And how many students are willing to talk to you? Um, and that you can connect with at, at, at all levels. Because part of it is you, you as the applicant want to hear from current students. You don't want to hear from me. I, I can tell you anything you wanted to know. And if I don't know it, I'll hook you up with somebody who, who can answer that. But I don't live it and breathe it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you need to hear from somebody who does. And those in the virtual world are going to be incredibly interested in M1 perspective because you guys just did this. So what, what going in, what did you expect? Did you find that when you got there? What were some challenges that you hadn't expected? And how happy are the students that are there? That's, that's key. So ask our students why you chose Rush. If we do that at interview day. When they introduce themselves, they always have to share why they chose Rush. So you chose your particular school for a reason. Find out from those students why they chose it. And does that align with what you're looking for, right? So we are very mission-driven, and you can see it through everything that we do. You can see it through our interview day. You can see it through our education. You can see it through our community service. Um, So you got to know the mission of the institution. Whatever institution you're interviewing at, you need to know that mission. And then you need to know... Do they live out that mission? Can you see that mission in everything they do? So is that mission evident in the curriculum? 
Is that mission evident in service opportunities? Is that evident in every aspect of your medical education? And do you align with that? Incredibly important. As a Wild West COVID Zoom applicant, I can definitely say that talking to students was one of the most insightful parts of the days that I did interviews and felt like we were all kind of hanging on to the same train that was going off the rails. But it was amazing to see how uh, you know, the ingenuity of the different kinds of virtual things that were offered. And so, that's, yeah, mm-hmm. sounds really exciting. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the medical, medical school application. So how do you as an admissions office weed out an authenticity within an application? You know, it's a long, it's a long process. And I think um, it, it just takes a dedicated team. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people we sit on our committee of admissions, you know, cause we have what 50 application reviewers, you know, so those that are, are diligent about reading applications, you know, what are we looking for? Are these the right fit? You know, so you've got somebody looking at it at that point in time. You've got interviewers, you did three, at least three interviews. And I think it's just important to ask a bunch of different questions, you know, to find out who this person is. You know, we want to find out in these interviews, are you who you say you are on paper? That's what we want to know, right? So there's part of kind of teasing that out a little bit. I I think there's a number of ways to do that. I think it's through your process. Um, All all schools have a, a great process that works for them and are able, again, to use that. It's, it's all about holistic admission, right? It's about using every aspect of the application to find out something more about the applicant to determine fit. So some, some schools will use a situational judgment test, pre, post, during, um, to find out a little bit more. Um, and, that, and I think that's what it's about. It's about knowing your process and really trying to figure out, how do I get to know you guys better? And it is hard when you get thousands of applications to determine what's that small percentage of applicants that we want to meet in person and we want to know more about. That's the hard job that I think all admissions offices across the country have. Jill, I have a question for you regarding kind of mm-hmm. the interview itself. Uh, you know, interviews are always stressful because it's just a small window of time that an applicant's able to show you who they are. And so I think there's often a lot of anxiety around, okay, how do I want to come across and what are the right things to say or what are the wrong things to say? To give you a little anecdote, I have a friend who went through the medical school application process. And one thing that he was very worried about is that he was very, very passionately interested in neurosurgery and and believed that that's what he really wanted to do. Uh, But he'd been given advice, maybe you know, stay away from mentioning that you're driving after neurosurgery because it might come off you know, incorrectly in an interview. And I'm just so curious in a situation like that, how much does the question of a 10 year plan or what specialty are you interested in? Mm -hmm. Does that answer actually matter? Or is it more about judging whether a student has a vision at all? For me personally, I like to see open-mindedness because I've worked in medical education a lot and I can tell you stories of students who would sit in my office and going into third year this happened years and years ago. And um, a, a student came in my office and said, I'm doing emergency medicine. I worked in the emergency medicine department. I was an EMT. I did that all through college. I was one of those campus EMT guys. In uh, summers, I worked for the emergency department. I'm EM all the way. Okay. 
you know, and so our emergency medicine rotation isn't until the fourth year because we use that as kind of a comprehensive core, you know, that you build up to. So knowing that he wasn't going to take this to his M4 year, I said, okay, go into your M3 year and just learn all that you can learn. If you're going into emergency medicine, you need to be an expert in all of these fields, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but learn as much as you can. Okay. Did that, did that six months later comes in, you know, I've really liked my rotations. I've done it, you know, whatever they were um, learning a lot, still doing emergency medicine. Okay, great. Comes in four weeks, more than halfway through his spinal rotation comes in, sits in my office. He says, I don't think I want to do emergency medicine. Like what? What do you mean? You're in your last rotation. You've been talking about this for the three years that I've known you. I said, tell me what's going on. Got into OB-GYN and loved it. Loved everything about it. Final rotation would never have anticipated loving OB-GYN matched into OB-GYN has been as successful since then. You know, so I tell that story because I, I think you're right. It's nice to have a vision. It's nice to know that people are open-minded. It's not uncommon for applicants who have had all of their healthcare experience in one field. It's not uncommon for them to think that they want to go into that field. And that's not uncommon. For me, I'm more interested in, do you have an open mind? You know, it goes back into those competencies. Are you willing to adapt? Because things might change and you have no idea, you know, and a number of applicants will say, I'm 99% sure I'm going to go into this field. But I also know there's a bunch of fields out there that I probably don't even know that exist, right? That's probably fair. You know, some, some of the non-primary care, some of the non-surgical, there might be um, opportunities out there that you're going to get exposed to in medical school. And you might find that, boy, boy, that's the right fit for me. And that's great. Then you can pivot and you can do what it takes to get into that residency and be a successful physician. So I know I didn't really answer your question, but I think it's not a simple answer. I personally don't get turned off by somebody coming in because I know what their four years is going to give them. And I know their four years is going to open their eyes to a number of things that they may not have known about or considered or had enough opportunity in that specialty to truly understand it and find that we all grow, right? So think about how much growth you've had from your, since your freshman year in college, how many of us are a different person? You know, that's going to happen in medical school as well. I know that because I've been in medical education for a while, um, but that's the joy of medical school. and, And for us, the third year, you really get to experience all of that and really learn some important pieces of that. For some, it's what kind of patient care do I want? You know, do I want that continuity of care or do I not need that in my profession? You know, and how many pre-meds really think about it in those terms? Some, absolutely. Um, Some may not. That's part of medical school. Jill, you're you're really talking to me because I'm a M2 knocking on that M3 door and I I was an AM scribe and I I was like, I'm doing EM and I'm still on that EM path, but we'll see what happens next year. Keep an open mind. When you hit those clerkships, keep an open mind. You're going to learn a lot and you're really going to learn what you like and what you don't like and what you want to do every day and what challenges you, right? Because those are the things that are important to us. You know, what's going to challenge us us through our career? And where do I really connect with the patients in a way that I want to connect with them? 
maybe my connection with patients is different than yours. We're not all going to have that same desire. So super exciting though, Erin, it's, it's such a great, you know, you, you get over that step hump and it's super exciting to go into those clerkship years. Well, I'm staring right down the barrel of that hump right now. So yes, you are. we'll talk about Hang it in, in a couple You're months. You're going to be good. <laughs> So for a lot of these students, I think like what you're saying, adaptability is really important for students to express within their, their answers. But do you think that for interviews, the content of your answer will convey that adaptability or humility or maybe even overconfidence if it's a negative comment? Or do you think it's more about how you express these experiences that are more important? I think you can get out. Can you talk about the experiences that... you've had and what did you get out of them? Right. So, you know, is this, if I ask you about a particular experience that you've had, that's on your experience section in AMCAS, can you really tell me about that? Or are you just regurgitating came in, I charted and I did, you know, it's how much did you gain from that experience? I always tell pre-meds when they're trying to figure out, you know, some advice on filling out the AMCAS application it's un- under the details of each of those experiences. Don't tell me what you did. Really tell me the interactions you've had. You know, were you able to talk to patients? Did you work with the healthcare team? And at what level? And what did you learn? What did your patients gain from you being, um, you know, you can spend a little time and say, I did, you know, I did vitals. I charted. I did research intakes. You know, that's fine but also really go a little bit deeper and tell me more about that experience. Um, and I, and I think Aaron, what we talk about in interviews is just more about that. You know, tell me, tell me about that. What did you learn? What was the hardest part of that? How did you negotiate that? You know, how did you turn that challenge into a positive? You see, you really got to be able to share those experiences at a different level than just kind of writing down. Here's what I did. But those are tough questions. Competency questions are tough. It makes you think. It makes you think about the experience that you had and what was it all about and what, you know, what was gained from it, you know, because we think about it every time we make a mistake, we learn from it, or at least I hope we learn from it, right? That's always the goal. We learn from our mistakes and, we, and then we change our behavior so that mistake doesn't happen again. That's a good goal to have. Does that Always. come out in the interview? You know, does that come out in different uh, scenarios that you choose to share with me during the interview? Right. Kind of stepping away from the interview a little bit with gap years and research years becoming a lot more normalized and the average age of admissions for students into medical school rising the line between non-traditional and traditional tags that we have traditionally used for medical school applicants have really changed. How would you encourage students and professionals who might be in their later years of life who are finding themselves as a pivot point, who are trying to determine whether medical school is the right decision for them? What advice would you give to these students who might be considered non-traditional? And do you feel that these tags are a little bit outdated? Well, I think they, I don't know if they're outdated as much as um, how applicants view the definition. We always have a tendency and always have had a tendency of recruiting those students who have taken one or two years. That's just the pool that we attract. 
a lot of those applicants are doing things like Teach for America or Peace Corps, or they're involved in research and it's really taken off the ground. They want to spend a couple years doing that. So that's something that we've always known and always, um, that's just who we are. So it's always interesting when somebody comes in here and they've had, it's a pre-med and they reach out for some advice. And, you know, first thing is I'm a non-traditional student. I've been out two years. You know, you're thinking, well, not in our definition is that non-traditional. And I think that you're in that that's what you're talking about. So is it somebody who did engineering and undergrad and then went into the engineering world and worked five to 10 years? And, you know, the last four years, they're saying, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And they find themselves volunteering in the community or being an EMT or starting as a firefighter and then moving into EMT and really enjoying this and having a passion for this, follow your passion. Absolutely. Life is long, but it's too short to be unhappy in what you're doing. You know, so if you have a passion for medicine and whether you come to it as someone who is 20 or 21, or you come to it as somebody who's 35, pursue your passion. You know, we've had, we have a member of our faculty, Faculty, prime example, member of our faculty, young attending, um, I think a couple years out of residency, who she came to us with, she was married, family, and had three young kids. And she found her passion for medicine after she had done another career. And that's okay. I think if you find it later on, those are the people that really are all in in terms of my path for preparedness, be it academic, be it exposure to healthcare, be it um, commitment to service, leadership, research, all those kinds of things. They're, they're all in. It goes back to what we talked about earlier. We're different than what we were our freshman selves, right? And how much have we grown and uh, where do we want to be? So I say, I say pursue it. Pursue that passion. Do what it takes to um, do what you want, make a difference, and be fulfilled. So as an admissions officer, does your office look at previous years as they set goals for future classes? As an example, my most recent class, my class was 70% female. And, you know, that's an important demographic within a class. And I'm just curious if things like that come into play in your selection process. I think absolutely. And, you know, it's going to come into everybody's play at at some point. You know, data is good. Data is rich right? We're a very, as most schools are, a a data-driven institution, you know, so it's hard, um, you know, not necessarily knowing your applicant pool, and especially as your applicant pool filters filters down, right? Um, You know, you've got some control over, um, say, gender, you've got some control over in-state, out-of-state, you know, and, and everybody's mission and goals are different. You know, so an in-state public school might have different goals in terms of what their what the demographics of their class looks like than a private school, right? Could be related to funding. It could be related. Well, they get state dollars, for instance. So you know, um, so you know, we do. We look at trends more than just one year. We look at trends. We we have goals of. all the dimensions of diversity, not just race and ethnicity, but we, you know, let's look at all of the dimensions of diversity and say, um, 
how are classmates going to benefit from each other? You know, let's look at it in those terms, right? So if you have everybody from the Midwest, you're going to have a Midwest perspective on everything that we teach, right? So let's diversify that. And we need people from all across, all across the country. And that's the same thing with all of the dimensions of diversity. Um, so we look at the data, we look at the trends. Um, you know, we try to inevitably, you know, if we come in and say, we really want it to be 50-50, might happen, it might not happen. Um, you know, but I think you have to look at, or what we do, we look at what's important to us. You know, what, what is important to the future physicians that we are educating? Um, again, being on the near west side of Chicago, we're an anchor institution, which um, means we're heavily involved in the west side. And we're out in those neighborhoods working with those communities. So that's going to reflect in what we're looking for in terms of our class. When we talk about service, when we talk about exposure to individuals who aren't like you, don't come from your world, so to speak. You know, that's important because that's what our community is. So a general answer is absolutely we look at the data, but we look at trends, not just one. And then we talk to our committee and we talk to our dean and we say, you know, what's important? Demographic, what's the important attributes that a Rush Medical College student needs to have to be successful on our campus, in our community, and as a future physician? there is a lot that goes into answering that question. As a just quick follow-up, how do you define success? Do you use these metrics and statistics? Are you using grades, step scores, clinical evaluations? You see that there's a lot of data out there and trends that you're using to determine what you want in a class. Oh, success in a class, what we're looking for? Right, how would you define success? You know, I think success for us is for us to be able to look at our class, see the diversity of our class. And again, I'm talking about all dimensions of diversity, not just race and ethnicity. And, and, then, and then you track them, right? Are they successful in our curriculum? Are they involved in our community? Are they leaders on our campus like we had predicted that they're going to be? Um, have they successfully, um, and again, this is four years later, but have they successfully matched into a specialty um, of their choice? And are they successful in that residency? You know, so I think it's, um, yeah, you can say you're successful because we, we hit our numbers and the demographics of our class and everything that we look at really show that we have a diverse class, which is exactly what we were hoping for. You know, are the students that we're accepting, are they succeeding in our curriculum? Are they leaders on our campus? Are they leaders in our community? Are they making a difference? Are they making an impact? And I think that's how you define success. And kind of going back to the diversity that we've been talking about, personally, as an Asian American male, I know that my demographic is relatively overrepresented in medicine. And I know that there are some students that have some anxiety about those quote unquote diversity questions. How am I diverse or different from other individuals within my gender or my racial group? And what advice would you have for students who may worry that they might not be quote unquote diverse enough um, and how they can approach some of these questions when they're submitting their primaries and secondaries? I think they have to look internally. 
right? So I, I, you know, I don't have an answer for that, but I can pose some questions back to you. What can you contribute to my class? What can you contribute to my community, our community, the Rush community, the near West side? What can you bring to your class? So I think it takes some self-reflection on who you are, what you've done, what you're about, what your attributes are, and, and to really think about what's the difference you can make. Really take a deep look at um, those attributes that you have, the institution that you're interested in, and everybody can contribute. What is it that you can contribute? I'll also add from my own experience that diversity is bigger than just gender and race. And there are a lot of attributes that can contribute to diversity. So for pre-med students, if you're struggling with these questions, listen to Jill and really self-reflect on all your experiences. Well, and you know, sometimes it's it's hard to look out of that. And Erin, I'm so glad you brought that up because you're absolutely right. It is far more than that. And the AAMC has um, an attribute wheel. You know, if, if you're really inside the box and you can't think outside of that and you're, you're sitting here saying, but Aaron, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean by there's, there's more dimensions of diversity? There's more attributes. Go to the AAMC, look at their resources. You're absolutely right. There's more to dimensions of diversity than gender. I have another question for our potentially stressed pre-med listeners. When I was applying, I was always second guessing the amount that I interacted with the admissions office of the schools that I was very interested in. I was encouraged to make contact often by phone and by email in an attempt to get my name popping up and to be familiar. But I was really hesitant and anxious about overdoing it, despite the advice my friends had given me. Do you have any guidance for update letters and for post-submission communication in general for enthusiastic applicants who might not be publishing something new every week, but still want to stay in touch during the cycle? Boy, is that the million dollar question? Where's that balance? Knowing that I'm genuinely interested and, you know, being on the border of desperation um, or anywhere in between. I think it's a fine line. I think it's important. Um, We had 13,000 applications this year, right? How do you stand out? in amongst 13,000 applications. And I think that's the question, who's got the million dollar answer? But take advantage of updates, but not over advantage of updates, right? If you have something to update, absolutely do it. But if you're just updating because it's Monday of the week and you need to respond, you need to take a second look at that. You know, so, so what is the purpose of the update? And the update could be through what, an emailing the admissions staff. It could be, we have an opportunity in our application portal where students can update information. And we see that, we see that. So there's no need to email us and say, hey, I just updated something in my portal. I know, I know, I saw it. Um, You know, so there's that balance of if you have something to share that's going to enhance your application or it's something new, new information since when you submitted, absolutely. And then remember that large number of applications and it's going to take admissions teams some time to get through all of those, right? So 
if you haven't heard, it's okay to poke every now and then, um, poking every day, mm, poking every week. Mm. You know, I think at some, some point in the cycle to, for, can you genuinely tell me that you're really interested in that? Absolutely. That does not, and, and again, I'm only speaking for me and rush, but that doesn't hurt. So updates are always good. Hey, I just got a paper published in research. I didn't have that at time of application. Um, just developed this new community organization. Awesome. Anything that will strengthen your application, but don't just don't just reach out to reach out to say they haven't heard from me in a while. I should probably poke them and email them. Take advantage if they say if you have any updates. Sure, we do. Applicants call them letter of intent. I call them letters of interest. You know, so again, if we're if we're getting through the cycle and you haven't heard from us, you can send a letter of interest, but be careful with that. Are you sending a letter of interest to 10 schools? Hmm, right? It's that fine line. It's really that fine line. You don't want to be the applicant that the admissions team knows by first and last name, unless you've interviewed with us, right? <laughs> At that point in time, yes, you do want us to know you by first and last name, but you don't want to, you don't want to be the general applicant that we know right off the bat because we hear from you every day. So I have worked at Loyola with a program in which medical pre-med students across the country are able to sign up. They get workshops from the admissions office. They get mentorship from medical students on the medical school application process. And a lot of these medical students or pre-medical students struggled not because they weren't good applicants, but more so they weren't given the correct guidance on how to approach and navigate the application process. As an so example, true. one of the students I've mentored didn't understand how to fill out works and activity section, didn't know that awards, scholarship, shadowing can go into that section, or didn't know what it meant for the three most meaningful activities and how to fill those out, how to describe their experiences. Do you feel that there's a hidden curriculum or a high barrier to entry into medical school applications? You know, I, I agree with everything you said, Aaron, because we, we see that all the time with, with applicants. Um, so I think there's a number of, again, resources. Resources are so important. So, you know, start with the AAM resource guide to application. They'll tell you question by question. They'll tell you what the question is and what they're looking for. You know, so really get, I would encourage pre-meds to get out there, take a look at it um, and really use it as a guideline. Um at 10 programs that Loyola has, we, we have a similar one, Finding Your Rush, where we do it, um, peer, well, we do it mainly during the summer, but we'll do a couple sessions um, through in, during the December holidays. Um, but attend those, find out, because nine times out of 10, those of us who are doing those type of, of programs and open house type events, for instance, are, are talking about those things and giving you some tips and secrets, if you will to how to fill those out and definitely things to consider. Do you want everything in one bucket? So do you want everything to list under leadership? You know, what about your service? What about your healthcare exposure? You know, and vice versa. Do I want everything in healthcare because I'm applying to medicine? And then we don't see any research or education or community service or, or, or. Um, so I would just encourage you to use resources. So talk to, do you know anybody who is currently a student in med school? You guys are so much closer to that process than a lot of people pick their brains. You know, our, I know our um, 
SNMA chapter specifically has a session as part of our Martin Luther King Day of Service, where we bring pre-meds in. And that's one of the things we talk about is how to fill out that AMCAS application. So really search in your local community or um, undergrad community or ask healthcare advisors to help you find some of those, but really take advantage of those programs that are out there that will help you with that. Ask questions, have people read it. That's my pet peeve. The one piece of advice for the application have somebody proof it, especially that personal statement. And if you're cutting and pasting on that personal statement, have somebody who hasn't read it, read it to make sure that you did that cut and paste correctly. Because a lot of times applicants won't have done that cut and paste correctly. And then it's, you know, then we talk about attention to detail. We talk about, um, you know, a lot of other things um, that come with that. So I don't know if that answered your question, Aaron. Well, that was awesome. Our next question was, what resources should we reach out to? But you kind of covered that already. So we're, we're, we'll just... They're out there. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think to make sure that when you're applying with secondaries, make sure the right school is in your secondary. That's a deal breaker for me. I'll be honest. I'll be honest with you. That is a deal breaker for me. If somebody has put a different school in my secondary application answer, I'm done. You know, should I be? Should I not be that hard? Maybe not. But again, it goes back to attention to detail. It goes back to genuine interest, um, taking the time. Let's translate that attention to detail to being a physician writing a prescription. Um, and the cut and paste on that one is, is interesting too, because I can tell when you've cut and pasted because the typeset is different. Mm-hmm. But that shows up. Um, maybe that's just our secondary, but that shows up. And again, you know, I get it, but proof it, right? Proof those short answers, you know, those thousand characters or less, you know, and I always say, have somebody not in medicine proof it, you know, does it make sense to somebody who's not in medicine of what point you're trying to get across? Then you know that you've, you've been successful in that and take the time, you know, everybody just wants to rush through them. Talk about anxiety producing. I mean, we're, we're, we're coming full circle again, but secondaries are anxiety producing and they take a lot of time, but that's the gateway into the next phase of this process. So take the time, do due diligence, proof, 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 and have others read it. Keep it in Times New Roman, everybody. So Jill, another aspect of the application that I feel like remains quite a bit of a mystery uh, to applicants is the impact of the CASPER test and how that might affect the way that their application is seen. And so I'm curious what it looks like from your side. Uh, What factors did your office consider when deciding whether or not to make CASPER part of your application? Well, we currently do not, we do not use CASPER. Um, We have revisited those conversations over the course of the last year, year and a half. And so we are reinvestigating and reaching out to colleagues to see how they're using that piece in their application process. So I think it's always worth coming back. You know, we looked at Casper when Casper was first coming out and there was just a lot of unknown data and the data didn't seem to be pointing into um, how we could put it into have an impactful part of our process but it's changed over the years. And I know most applicants are having to do CASPER by the time that they, that they apply. So we are re-looking at it. When we went to virtual, we, we changed up the 
type of interviews that we offered, and, but our questions around the competencies, the WMC competencies. So, yes, the questions that we were asking are trying to get at those things that are super important in this career. So teamwork, reliability, dependability, capacity for improvement. So as we've now done this for a couple of years, we're looking at how do, how do we get more insight into that? And it, and it really comes back to how do we really determine those applicants that we think are going to be a good fit on our campus. So I'm going to defer and say next time we meet, maybe I'll have more information about Casper and how we may or may not use it or other tools around situational judgment. We're reinvestigating it and seeing how it can improve our process. I think that's a big piece of it. How does it help the applicant? What can we get from those types of pieces of the application that maybe we can't get somewhere else? Um, and we always, again, I'm going to go back to this. It's a, it's a theme, but we always go back to the cost. We don't want to require something if, if we're not going to incorporate it into our process and have a positive effect. We're always conscious of um, the cost of applying to med school. Great. Well, thanks, Jill. As we wrap up this interview, and thank you again for all the time that you've given us. Is there any last advice that you can give to our aspiring physician audience? I'll take it back to, you know, what we talked about before. Um, this is what you really want to do. And you can make an impact by being a physician. Follow that passion. And for some of you, you might be successful on that first opportunity. Uh, many of you, you're not going to be. And that's okay. Don't give up. You know, take a step back reevaluate a lot of common themes in our conversation today, self-assess, see why, you know, what parts of your application you can strengthen. Are you applying to the right schools? Again, we go back to that mission, mission of those institutions. You know, did you just not apply to the right schools? Do you not have enough exposure that says, I know what I'm getting myself into with this career. That's what healthcare exposure for us is. This is a long haul. And, you know, it's, a lot of years of further education. So we want to make sure when you're coming in that you know what this is going to entail and you know that this is what you want to do. So don't give up. Use resources. There are lots of resources out there. Like we talked about before, it could be fellow undergrads that are now in med school. It could be friends of the family. It's healthcare advisors. It's science teachers. It's admissions folks at different schools. It's the internet, go on the AAMC, Google medical schools, see if they offer any of these open house programs that you can get some insights. Um, we're doing a new boot camp in March that spends three Saturdays talking about all those different aspects of not only the application process, but then we get into interview and doing mock interviews, thank you notes, when to write them, when not to write them, how do you write them? You know, so look for programs that are like that. Um, that you can benefit and just soak up all the information you can soak up and pursue your passion. Thanks so much, Jill. If after listening to this podcast, if you guys have some questions that I can help you with, or if there's some things I can answer, or if you're 100% excited about Russ, um, absolutely, you can contact me. Email me at rmc underscore admissions at rush.edu and in the subject line, Medigus podcast.
And another resource available are two previous episodes on admissions with Dean Neighbors and Dean Nakai. So make sure to check those out and thank you again for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.